You might be turning to 2 Timothy chapter 4 while you do that. Uh, we have at least one lesson, but more than likely two lessons left in 2 Timothy. After that, we'll be. it's my plan to move then to the book of Acts. Now, most of you haven't studied the book of Acts in a long time. It's not, it's not taken in an expositional way that often, but I think it's time to do the book of Acts. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I've I've taught it many times up at the College of Biblical Studies. That's one of the subjects that I, I, I teach quite a bit. But um, the book of Acts is, is a book primarily of history, but secondarily of theology. And it's a fairly long book, 28 chapters. And so if you're inclined, you might, you might go ahead and start reading that now so that you'll be somewhat familiar with it as we, as we get started with it. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but... But really, there are two primary apostles uh, that are followed in the book of Acts, Peter and then in the beginning, and then Paul toward the end. If you like geography, you're going to like the book of Acts. If you like history, you're going to love the book of Acts. But it is history with a purpose. It's not just history. There's history with a purpose. It's selected history. Um, and um, uh, if you're uh, a little confused about where Paul went on his first missionary journey, and then on the second, and then on the third, I, I think by the time we finish this, uh, you'll be less confused and and uh, maybe even be fairly clear on where he went. But uh, you might, if, you, if you're inclined, that's where we're going next. So I'd invite you to start reading through that. But for tonight, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll consider verses 9 through 14 in terms of exposition. But what I'd like to do is go back to verse 6 and read through verse 6, all the way verse eight through verse 18, so that we can get the context. Tonight we'll just study a few of these verses, but I'd like to go back a little bit. And when Paul says, coming to the end of this letter, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Then in verse 9, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Corpus. And the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. During his first imprisonment, some five years earlier, Paul seemed to be unsure at that time as to whether or not he would be released or he would be executed. This time around... The outcome is clear. He is not going to be released. He will die in this Roman imprisonment. As this epistle closes, we get a glimpse of the, 
I'll call tonight the personal Paul. We know something of his personality already. You can't read that much about someone and not know something of the personality. You know, you, you know a lot of my personality, having been around me for s- several years now. That's just inevitable. But these are some especially personal comments that he makes toward the end. The Holy Spirit had worked through Paul so that without waiving his own intellect, his own personality, his own, his own cultural norms, God's complete and coherent message to his people was made known. So Paul didn't waive his intellect. You see it in his writings, just like you see a bit of Peter's intellect and Peter's personality in his writings and John as well. In fact, even their styles, if you were to read Peter in the original Greek and you read Paul in the original Greek, or you read, you read some of Peter's writings, by the way, and read, or rather, and some of Paul's writings without knowing who they were. You could tell after a time, after having read them a bit, you can tell whose writing it is just from the style of writing. You can tell a bit about their intelligence, or, or, or more, more specifically, more, more their scholarship, more their education. And so the Holy Spirit didn't set all that aside. The Holy Spirit does tell us something about his personality, but we learn even more here as he comes right out and tells us some very specific things. He opens his heart up a bit, if I could use that terminology. You see, Paul wasn't a Stoic. He talked to the Stoics in Athens, but he himself was not a Stoic who detached himself from his emotions as part of his spiritual life. But rather, he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who recognized that he was created in the image of God with emotion, intellect, and will. And while that image was severely damaged at the fall, it was not erased at the fall. The image of God in man was, as we say theologically, effaced, but not erased. Adam and Eve could still think after the fall. Adam and Eve could still choose after the fall. Adam and Eve could still feel after the fall. But it wasn't the same as it would have been, or as it was before the fall. So, so Paul understood that he was created in the image of God. He understood that the effects of the fall would be permanent until such time as he got a new, new body and resurrection body. But he wasn't a robot. He wasn't a machine. He was a human being. When the believer is walking in fellowship with God, the emotion of the believer will be expressed in a manner that's consistent with that believer's intellect, or that is consistent with the stimulus that's in front of that believer, and then God-honoring choices will also be made when that believer is walking in fellowship with God. Now, if the believer is not walking in fellowship with God, then true, emotions might not be consistent with the stimulus. If I was to tell you some real, real funny story, I'm not going to do it, but if I was to tell you some real funny story in the next few minutes, it would be normal, it would be healthy, both spiritually and psychologically, if it's something's funny for you to laugh, wouldn't it? If I was to tell you a real sad story and you identified with it, it would be very normal, it would be very healthy psychologically and spiritually for you to, to maybe shed a tear. It's because, see, that emotional response would be consistent with the stimulus that's in front of you. I told some of you, some of you weren't here when I did, but when I saw the movie... Saving Private Ryan for the first time. I had looked forward to seeing that, and most of you have seen it by now, and if you hadn't seen it by now, I assume you're not going to see it. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you part of the plot line. I don't mean to spoil it for you, but it is, after all, several years old. But I wanted to see it so badly, I went ahead and and went to the movie at 11 o'clock one night. I never do that, but I wanted to see it on its first day. And the movie theater was absolutely packed. And those of you that have seen it know that there are some very, very tender moments in that movie. 
one of the most tender moments is when he comes back to the graveside of the fellow that was played by Tom Hanks, who had saved his life. Actually, it's very, it's very uh, Christological in the sense of substitutionary death there. And, and he falls on his knees and he weeps and he looks at his wife and says, was I a good man? In other words, did I earn this man's giving his life for me? Now, if you, if you have any, if you have anything to your soul at all, your, your eyes were filled with tears at that moment. If you had anything to you at all, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, right down the aisle from me to the right, a bunch of teenagers started laughing uncontrollably. And I looked over and I'm thinking, what is wrong with the soul of an individual that would see that and laugh? It was totally inappropriate for the response. Matter of fact, I don't know if there were any funny parts of that movie. I can't remember, but I know that there were some... There, there were some parts that should have made an individual sad. My, my point is, Paul's not a Stoic. The Stoics, they had many different aspects to their, to their, I won't call it their theology, but their philosophy. But one of the aspects of their philosophy was that if they were a good Stoic, they would completely detach themselves from their emotions, no matter what the stimulus. Well, that's not Christianity. God gave you these emotions. He invented them. But he invented them to be used appropriately. So whatever the stimulus, there should be an appropriate response. And if you're walking in fellowship with God, there normally will be. Now sometimes, sometimes people don't, um, don't hear it right or they don't, they don't get the joke or whatever. And I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about an appropriate response to the appropriate stimulus. Now Paul has been abandoned by some people that he had trusted before. Since Paul is human, we're going to see him mention some of those people. And you're going to see just, just a little twinge here of that loneliness that he feels. And it's not, a, it's not an unspiritual loneliness. It's a real loneliness that he has. That's the emotion that's going, to, that's going to kind of creep in through the letters of these words here tonight. So if you pick that up on the first reading, you're, you picked up the right thing. He's pouring his heart out to one of his best friends as he, as he pins these final words. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity to be emotionless. Far from it. It's also not a sign of, of spiritual maturity to allow your emotions to run away from you. I could put it this way. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity to allow emotions to take over the soul and to push rational thought into, into the background. I will agree with that. That is a sign of, of spiritual immaturity. But that's a subject, another subject for another day. Paul deeply desires that his good friend Timothy make every effort to come see him as soon as it is possible. Remember where Paul is. Tradition has it that he's in the Mamertime dungeon in Rome. I, I've stood not 20 feet from that Mamertime dungeon. It's, it's a real eerie feeling. You can look straight at the Mamertime dungeon, and if you're looking at it, you can look over to your left, and probably not 100 yards from there is where Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Roman Forum. But, but standing in front of that, in front of that building that's over the top of where it was, you just can't help but think of, of uh, Paul. Perhaps even Peter. Peter says that, that uh, the, the uh, tradition, early church tradition says that Peter was in prison there as well. When Paul was in prison the first time, it was under house arrest. He, he had visitors come and go. He had a certain amount of freedom. He couldn't come and go himself, but he could receive people. Not in the Mamertime dungeon. It, it, was, it was probably fairly cold in there. The, it was probably extremely unsanitary in there. And it wasn't a good place to be. And the people that Paul, many of the people that Paul had been counting on 
had deserted him at that time. There really isn't any contradiction between verses 6 through 8 and verse 9. In verses 6 through 8, Paul is not saying that he's going to die within the next few days. He implies that he will die during this imprisonment and that his ministry is over. And given the delays common to the judicial system both then and now, he assumes that there's sufficient time for the letter to get to Timothy and then for Timothy to travel to Rome. So he's not contradicting himself when he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is coming. Then, hey, Timothy, come visit me. He assumes there's going to be a bit of a time, or at least he hopes there's enough time for Timothy to get there. At this point, I want to make one editorial comment. It is a a planned one. It's not one of those um, just off-the-cuff ones. But I I just have to tell you something. I've seen in the past, even in the last year, but especially in the last two years, this happened enough times that I knew when I came to this passage I wanted to stop and say something about it. Too many times loved ones wait too long to make that phone call or to go see someone that is in the dying process. Our lives get so busy, and we say, well, I'm going to go see dad or my brother or my sister. Somebody. I'm going to go see them as, as soon as we're finished with this summertime. I'm so busy this summer that I, I, I'm going to, you know, I need to go see them. I know they're very ill. I need to go see them, and I want to catch them before they go to be with the Lord. I want to see them one more time, or I want to talk to them one more time. And, you know, and then the weeks pass and the months pass, and you don't do it, and you get that phone call, and there's inevitably regret. I'll never forget, I was, I was on the way down the south, the Gulf Freeway about 18 months ago, and um, a, a person called me to ask how their loved one was doing, because she was coming the next day to see him. Now, she hadn't seen him in six or seven years, but it was happened to be her father. She was coming the next day to see her father, and I had just gotten a call not 30 seconds before, not 30 seconds that the father had passed away, and then, but I was kind of the go-between. You know, so I answered the phone, hello, you know, and oh yes, this is this person, and oh, I just needed to see, how, how's daddy doing today? I'm gonna be down there this weekend, you know. And I, and I said, uh, your daddy just went to be with the Lord. And she was crushed. And she, she was just ripped, her, her, you could tell that her, her, her heart had been ripped out, but she had so many opportunities to do it, she had so many opportunities to pick up the phone and call him. But it was always, I'm gonna do it tomorrow, I'm gonna do it the next day. So if you're, you know, if you've got somebody that you're wanting to talk to, won't you go ahead and do it? Won't you do it tomorrow? Pick up the phone, write them a note, go see them. They may not, they may be in heaven, and you're going to have a reunion with them someday. If if, if you're all believers, that's true. But but save yourself the regret that not only this lady but some other people. And I'm telling you, when I finally saw her, she she was the most distraught person at the funeral. Because she knew she wanted to say some things to her dad, and she just didn't get them done. In that case, I don't. You know, I assume the dad's a believer, and I assume she was too, and they'll both see each other in, in heaven. I don't think that's assuming too much, but that's my editorial comment. I, as history doesn't tell us one way or another, but I assume Timothy got with his travel agent right away and made the reservations, and he got out of town, out of Ephesus, and went right away. When Paul asked him to come quickly, it's time to do it. Timothy had a ministry, didn't he? Just like you got you got reason you got things that are keeping you in Houston right now, but he also there's also a time to pick it up and move on and set some of the things we're doing right now aside to make that final visit. And so what if it's not the final visit? So what if they live another year and you get to see them again? And that would just be even greater. 
I don't know why we have to wait. He says, I'm going to wait to the last week. If I can just time this to the last week, I'm going to go do that, and then we'll be fine. No, do it every time you get an opportunity. Okay? So he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Many people have already deserted Paul by this time, and others have left, perhaps, I'm going to propose tonight, for legitimate ministry purposes. Paul's trial has already begun and apparently has already ended, and no one has defended him during that trial. In fact, it's, it's possible that one of the people that's mentioned here spoke out against him, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. At this, at this time, I'm going to guess, and I think this is a, a reasonable guess, that it's early autumn by the time Paul writes this. I'm going to, I'm going to assume that it's early autumn of 67. It could be wrong about that, but I think that's pretty close. And I believe Paul was probably executed sometime in the winter 67, 68, or perhaps even early spring 68. There's difference of opinion amongst New Testament scholarship about that, but that's, uh, that's, I believe that's a fair understanding. Paul wants Timothy to come real soon. He wants him to come before winter because, first of all, he might not be there when the winter time comes. He may, he may be executed at any moment. But also, wintertime travel was much more difficult then than it would be now. Uh, there were, there were um, weather-related issues that one would have to deal with when traveling. So he wants him to come so that he won't be held up. So he says, make every effort to come to me uh, very soon. Also, Luke is going to be mentioned in a moment. I'll mention it now. Luke's presence is an interesting presence. He's going to also call for a heavy coat. I think this might speak to the circumstances under which Paul finds himself, the physical conditions. Luke was a physician. Now, Luke might have just been there because he was his friend, but he might have been there because he was a, a physician and Paul needed medical help. And the coat issue could be even in the fall. If, if he was in very unsanitary circumstances, he could have had a fever. There could have been some physical problems there too. But we'll talk about that momentarily. Look at verse 10. For Demas, having loved this, this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I'm going to stop there because the other two people mentioned are in a different category from Demas. Demas is Paul's fellow worker that's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, and also in Philemon 24. We talked about Demas when we studied the, the books of Colossians, the letters of, uh, to, the, to the Colossians and to, to Philemon. Um, he was a good friend of the Apostle Paul. So his desertion must have been very painful for Paul. The Greek term for desertion here is a very strong term. And it implies more than Demas just left. But it also implies that he had forsaken Paul. In fact, it's the same word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it's the, it's the word that the Septuagint uses in Psalm 22.1, where it is, is foreshadowed Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's the same word that's translated forsaken there. But the contrast, and we don't know the circumstances of this, but we do know this. If you remember, the last part of verse 8 says that the crown of righteousness would be awarded not only to Paul, but to all who have loved his appearing. We have a very clear contrast here between those who will receive the crown of righteousness and Demas. Because Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world. Now, you can't get any bigger contrast than that. You have those who love Jesus Christ, 
and then you have those who love the present world. And Demas was of the second category. But let's not forget that he was a trusted servant, not just five or six years before. The prison epistles, the first prison epistles, were written between 60 and 62, and now we're in 67 to 68, and Demas has already turned. Demas' behavior does not prove that he was never a believer in Jesus Christ in the first place. Some say that, but those who claim that carry that idea to this text. This text doesn't say that. But what this text certainly says is that Demas should not look forward to receiving the crown of righteousness at the judgment seat of Christ. There is a, there's a doctrine that's called the perseverance of the saints. And the perseverance of the saints is the P part of TULIP, for those of you that are familiar with that acronym that came out of the Synod of Dorton in 1618, 1619. The perseverance of the saints says, says essentially this, that a person who truly is a believer will persevere in good works until the end of their life. Now, the perseverance of the saints actually first came up with a man named Augustine, but Calvin is the one who, who really put the finishing touches on it, and then one of Calvin's students or uh, friends or colleagues, uh, Theodore Beza, I think, really codified it. But the perseverance of the saints says that a person's spiritual life will be something like this. And it'll end on the upswing. In my view, that's not a biblical doctrine. It's a nice idea. It's the, watch, it's the expected norm. That's what God would expect from you. But there are people whose spiritual life, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose spiritual life may look more like this. And that's Demas right here. Other people who, who hold to the perseverance of the saints would say that a person cannot go for years and never show any... Um, any of the fruit of the Spirit, if you truly are saved, there will be some fruit of the Spirit that would be evident. And in fact, it's, it's not a real well-known uh, fact, I don't think, but people like Zane Hodges and, and Robert Leitner, Charles Ryrie, people who, who hold to a position that's called a free grace position, which, is, which would disagree with the perseverance of the saints, they too agree that, that if you truly are saved, then there'll be some fruit production. But the idea is, how much can somebody else see? God is the one that actually sees the fruit production. But that's not what, that's not what Demas is an example of. Demas is an example of someone who had apparent fruit. And that cannot be denied. You look at the book of Colossians, he is a co-worker with Paul. He's, he was up here, and then all of a sudden, he decides to change directions. I think Demas was a believer. I think there's, there's no reasonable data in the text that would tell us, no, he was just a professing believer. He just pretended the whole time. Sometimes people bring up Judas. Can't bring up Judas. The text tells us Judas was not a believer. The text doesn't tell us here. So let's not go further than what the text says. This is a believer who finished poorly. And we should be warned against that. In fact, Paul warned us all against that, didn't he? Even in some of the stuff we studied last week, he wanted to finish well so that after serving for so long, he wouldn't himself be disqualified, not from salvation, but from the prize that was to be won, from that crown, from that wreath that was imperishable. So let this be a warning. This is how we ought to finish. 
this is what is expected of us. This is what God would have for us. But we all have to look at what happened to Demas and realize that's a possibility. There was a time when he started loving the world more than he loved the appearing of Jesus Christ. So Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I think that this probably hurt Paul very much. You know, you can be a mature or maturing believer and be hurt. Did you know that? You can be someone who's a mature believer and have pain of the soul. I, I don't know where some folks got this idea that if you're a mature believer, nothing will ever bother you again. That's not a scriptural concept at all. Of course it's going to bother you. But it's how you handle that bother. You see, it's how you handle the pain. Do you quit and do you go home? And you put your head in your pillow and you just cry? And you, do you pull a demon and said, well, okay, if that's the way it's going to be with God, I'm going to go another direction. Or do you realize you may be in the fight of your life? Do you realize this may be your Goliath? Do you realize you may be walking down that little way and into that stream and pick up your five stones? Now, are you going to charge Goliath? Or are you going to turn around and turn tail and run the other direction? That's, it's your moment. To use the football analogy, it's the fourth quarter, two minutes to go. You got the ball. It's the Super Bowl. You're down by four. You're going to be Joe Montana and go right down the field against Cincinnati? Or are you going to quit? It's your choice. Demas quit. But we all ought to be Joe Montanas in the way we finish. We should finish well. Something that struck me when I heard Dr. Pentecost, in my, in my, the final time I heard him at Dallas Seminary, and he's spoken since then, and Dr. Walbert both, both of them spoke about finishing well. Almost every time I speak to, to Robert Leitner, he, he speaks about finishing well. They all know that just, just one bit of arrogance can come and ruin a ministry. They don't want that. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then he mentions two other people. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. On a superficial reading, that may bother you. may think, well, Titus is the one he just wrote this letter to. Did he desert him as well, loving this present world? No. That, that first phrase applies only to Demas. The, the, the part about having deserted me. The, the phrase that belongs, that, that governs this ellipsis here with Crescens and Titus is just the verb to have gone. So there's, there's no indication at all that there's any failure here with Crescens and Titus as there is with Demas. It just says they've simply gone. Titus had gone to Dalmatia. Oh, by the way, Crescens, we, we don't really, Crescens, we don't know a whole lot about him other than what's said here. Tradition for what it's worth. The tradition says that, that he went north from Rome into Gaul, which is France, and founded two churches near Lyon, France, a very ancient Roman city, and later became the Bishop of Chalcedon. Um, so, but he didn't desert Paul. I, I don't believe that's the proper reading of the text. Only Demas deserted Paul. Then, then Titus, you know about him. Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is modern-day Yugoslavia, or actually modern-day Croatia, Bosnia, or Herzegovina. It's that area, anyway. I've never been there. I'm told it's a very beautiful area. But, but this is an area that, that Romans 15, 19 tells us Paul had already visited. So it looks like that Titus has been probably sent by Paul to follow up on this area of the world. 
Remember, Titus is one of Paul's closest associates. He, he was from the beginning, and I believe he was all the way to the end. But Paul realized there were more important things for Titus to do than stay with him, because Paul doesn't know how long it's going to be. So he sends Titus to get a particular job done. When we studied Titus, I mentioned to you, Titus is more the drill sergeant personality. Remember that? Also when we studied First and Second Corinthians, Paul had sent some Timothy to do some ministry to the Corinthians. The Corinthians ate him up and spit him out. So Paul says, okay, i got somebody else I'm going to send down to you. He, he sent Titus the next time. They didn't eat him up and spit him out. He was a different personality, but a, certainly a beloved member of the ministry team. Actually, we've seen several people already that are ministers of the ministry team. Apparently, Demas was. Apparently, he was there as, as part of Paul's ministry team. Uh, Luke is part of Paul's ministry team. It'll come up in the next verse. Crescens apparently was at least a peripheral member of it. Titus certainly was. But then in verse 11, only Luke is with me. Luke's the only member of the inner circle that's left there. It doesn't mean that Luke's the only one there. That's, that would be misreading it, because when we get to verse 21, Paul's going to mention four other individuals that are there with him. But Luke is the only one of the original ministry team that's left there with him. Luke was a Gentile physician. Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament in terms of the number of words than anybody else. That's a trick question. Most people think it's Paul, but Luke, Luke edges him out by just a little bit. He writes the third gospel that bears his name, and I believe he also wrote the book of Acts. Because Luke is there, and he's the only member of the ministry team left, some New Testament scholars believe that Luke was the one that, that, that Paul rather dictated this to Luke, and Luke wrote it down. No way of proving that, but it's certainly not far-fetched to think that. So he, he says only Luke is with me. Then he says something very interesting, especially if you have read through the book of Acts lately. You'll, this will really strike you. If not, read through it, and it will strike you retrospectively, <laughs> if that could be done. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, the reason this is so incredible was in the first, at the first missionary journey, Mark left that missionary team and went home. It never, it never says really why he left, but nevertheless, he did. Then when it came time for the second missionary journey, we'll see on into our study in the book of Acts. It'll probably be well into next year before we get there, so I'll tell you now. When it came time for the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had a big fight about it. I mean, a righteous fight. I'm sure they were both in fellowship when they did it. And we're going to talk about that at the time because neither one of them is condemned by the text. If you can both be right in the situation, it looked like it was. So Paul ends up taking Silas with him because he says, John Mark's not coming with me again. I can see why. You know, they went through some tough times, and here's this fellow is that, that deserted him. He doesn't want him around. So Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark, and then you don't hear from John Mark for a while. The next time you hear from him, he's back with the ministry team with Paul. That does show you that people, people can change. John Mark was the son of Mary, that's all we know about her, Mary of Jerusalem. He's the cousin of Barnabas, which is one of the reasons why I think, I'll explain it again later too, that, that Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. It's, John Mark is an interesting character. He writes the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, that's the gospel that he writes, probably in close association with Peter. It's interesting, two of the people there that, that are there at the end with Paul, assuming Mark gets there too, are two of the gospel writers. I think that's an interesting thing. But tradition, early church tradition also says this fellow, John Mark, that, that says that it was probably his home, his parents' home, where, where the upper room was, Last Supper, the upper room discourse was held. 
probably, at least church tradition indicates that John Mark's father most likely owned the area that's called the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why Jesus spent a lot of time there. That's, he may very well have ordinarily spent time there during the Passover. may have even slept there because the, the authorities in Jerusalem extended the boundaries of the town for that period of time. So he was certainly well known. But I think that this is interesting. It shows you that people can change. Sometimes people make a mistake in the early part of their ministry, and they, they turn it around. And I do believe, and I've talked to you about this before when we had our studies in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, that certain mistakes may disqualify you from certain types of ministries. But that's not the case here with Mark. He made a mistake. He chickened out. Can I say that? Perhaps that was it. We assume that's what it was. Otherwise, if it was for legitimate reason, you wonder why Paul wouldn't want him on the next time. So whatever it was, Paul didn't think it was legitimate. But here it is at the end, and this is one of the people that Paul asked for. It tells me something about John Mark, that he changed. It also tells me something about Paul, that he was willing to forgive him and give him another shot. So we, we ought not to forget that. He's also called Paul's fellow worker, just like Demas was back in Colossians chapter 4 and in Philemon 24. So Paul is a person that recognized something in Mark. And he facilitated Mark finishing well. So if we, if we put names on these two sets of arrows up here, we, we may do Mark like this, perhaps with a, just a little bit more of a dip, but then by the time he finishes, he finishes well. So just because somebody has a little dip in the spiritual life doesn't mean they're going to finish poorly. As long as God leaves them alive, there's still a shot for them. Verse 12, the Tychicus... I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is the final member of Paul's inner circle. He's been sent to Ephesus probably to replace Timothy. While Timothy comes from, remember, Paul's been encouraging Timothy to keep the faith, you know, to, to do all these things in Ephesus. And now he's saying, listen, come on, see me. But before he ever gets through the end of the letter. So I think Timothy's going to end up back in Ephesus. But in the meantime, Paul is sending a substitute teacher, a substitute apostolic representative there. And nobody could really be better, I think, than Tychicus. It was probably, might have been Tychicus who carried this letter to Timothy. If, if so, there is a little bit of redundancy here that's hard for scholars to, to put together because if he's the one that carried the letter, it does seem strange that Paul would say, but Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus because you, know, you wouldn't hold a letter. They'd say, I'm, I'm sending, it would be obvious, but, but that seems to be the consensus that Tychicus carried it. Tychicus was also the person that carried the letter to Ephesus in the first place. The one that he had written five years before. And he's also the one that carried the letter to the Colossians. So he's well known. I've had the opportunity to substitute in, in different places, you know, at the college or uh, I, sometimes when I'm around the country, I'll, I'll speak at different churches. It's always easiest when they know you. Yeah. It's it's always hardest when they've never they don't know you from Adam. Tychicus would have been known, so it's a good choice, obviously, to send him. Now some personal comments in verse thirteen. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. This is a comment that I think that uncovers Paul's humanness. Sometimes we have, sometimes it's like this. We look at all of us and we look at God and then we put somebody like the Apostle Paul in between us. He's not really God, but he's not really one of us either. You know what I mean? 
This pulls Paul right back down and shows that he is perfectly human. When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus. Also these parchments and books. This is the, what, what, what uh, Paul says here to Timothy has led some to believe that it, that it might very well have been at Troas that Paul was arrested and then taken to Rome. He would, we know that he was north of there and was coming down to see Timothy at Ephesus. For some reason, he leaves his cloak behind, his books and his parchments. It seems like fairly suddenly. And so he's saying, I want you to go back through there and pick up that stuff that I left, left with this man, Carpus. The cloaks, uh, since um, different people have written books about this, come before winter and, and such, the cloak would have been similar to, uh, to what we might call a poncho. It would, have, it would have been a very heavy kind of material with a hole in the top of it that they would have just, they would have laid over. It wouldn't have been a coat like George Washington would have worn. Not, not a tailored coat like that. But like a real heavy poncho that would have guarded him against the, the weather, whether it be the rain, but also against, um, the elements of temperature. We don't know exactly what he means by the books, especially the parchments. It's always been assumed that that's his Hebrew Bible that he's looking for. But that could be, taken another way. So if Paul was arrested, and, and that's an if, but it's a fairly good assumption. If Paul was arrested at Troas, then Timothy would, was going to be asked to retrace those steps, meet with this man, Carpus, and pick up these things. If he had been going the usual route, he would have done those things. He probably would have met John Mark somewhere along the way. He would have gone up through Macedonia on the Ignatian Way, one of the major Roman highways, he would have sailed across the Adriatic uh, to the eastern coast of Italy, and then he would have completed his journey either on foot or, or uh, horseback or something like that uh, along the way. Then, verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith. He said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We don't know anything else about this fellow. We are left to speculate Nothing's more known about Alexander. We know that he was a metal worker, a coppersmith. It's unclear as to where this opposition took place. Let me give you the possibilities. It could have taken place in Rome. This could have been one of the ones that testified against Paul. We don't know. He could have, and it's my best guess, that he, that he was a problem in Troas. Because he's warning Timothy against this man. He's not sinning when he does. He's not maligning the guy. He's just saying it's a statement of fact. I'm guessing that the, that the opposition that he had was in Troas. Maybe Alexander the coppersmith was one of the people that in some way contributed to Paul being arrested. Perhaps. It also could have been in Ephesus, but I think it was probably either in Rome or Troas. I would lean toward Troas. It seems as though this is more than just a theological disagreement. This wasn't just a debate they had in the town square one day, and they got on opposite sides of an issue. I wonder, and it's just a wonder, I wonder if Alexander the coppersmith had something to do with Paul's arrest. And so Paul is warning Timothy, who's fixing to pass back through that territory, be careful with this guy. Last time I ran into him, he had me arrested. I don't want that to happen to you. It is speculation, but it is I think, legitimate speculation. In, at any case, no matter what had happened between Paul and Alexander, Timothy should have been on the alert. Paul's not being vindictive here, by the way. This is not a sin. He's warning his dear friend, and then he leaves the punishment for Alexander in God's hands. 
Interesting, too, Paul mentions names. Now, he's an apostle. Most of the rest of us are a little nervous about doing that. You, you know how pastors do. We all beat around the bush. We describe the person so well, you know exactly who we're talking about. We think we're getting away with it. God's probably just whooping me for doing that, too. But, but, but he named names because he wanted, he wanted Timothy to beware of this guy. Just like from time to time, I'll give you a name. If, someone, if someone's name is, is very, very uh, universally associated with a particular view and they're out there writing books, if they're on television, if they're making themselves an issue, I'm going to give you their name because I want to warn you against them. Sometimes I have done everything I could to warn you against somebody not giving your name and then I'll have somebody, hey, would you read this? This is a fantastic book. And it's the person I was talking about. <laughs> I said, well, no, that's, uh, no I, I got a few problems with that fellow. But, uh, let me tell you what they are. So, so I guess we, we play games with this sometimes, but, but Paul didn't play games. I think this last phrase is interesting. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We can't tell from that whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. It sounds like he's an unbeliever, right? But that's a very similar phraseology to what Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that he's going to repay us according to our deeds as well. But it's, it's similar to what you find in the book of Revelation, that he's going to judge the unbeliever according to their deeds. So all this means is he's going to get a fair evaluation. If you're like me, and, and I hope that in many respects you're not, but, but this, I don't want you to share this pattern of my flesh. I would like to be the one that decides how the guy gets repaid sometimes. You know what I mean? I, that's called vengeance. <laughs> and and Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So you see, that's what Paul's doing. He's not, he's not, this is not vitriolic, it's not, it's not hateful. He just says, be careful with this guy, and I'm turning him over to the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of him. To the end, Paul has remained in fellowship. He says about Alexander, he vigorously opposed our teaching. Again, that could have been, and I believe it's much more than just a theological debate. But Paul doesn't become bitter. And that's how I'd like to close this tonight with you. We're, we're going to actually close it in the middle of the paragraph, so we're going to be wrapping the paragraph up next time. But, but when I put this together today, I knew that we would get to this point about the point we are. So either I'd go too long or cut it just a little bit short. I'm going to cut a little bit short. But let, but let me say this. As, as Paul finishes up, he finishes well, just like he always wanted to. I have no doubt in my mind no doubt in my mind that when, when that cell door opened on that day, perhaps in the spring of AD 68, and they led Paul out, his knees may have been wobbly. He's, he may have been frail from malnutrition by that time. Remember, he, he's probably about 68 years old at that time, which is still a very young man. But, <laughs> but not for someone who's been in prison and been, been given 39 lashes by the Jews, you know, five times, and... And, and all that, I have no doubt, though, while his knees may have been wobbly, I, I don't think his heart wobbled at all. I think he loved the Lord to the end. I think he walked out with great confidence. I think every step he took, he realized, I'm one step closer to seeing my Savior face to face. I don't think he had one second's regret as he walked out past the city gates and he laid his head on that stone and the Roman lictor uh, removed his head from his shoulders. I think he did it with great, great confidence. I believe that Paul finished well. There's every indication that he did. To the end, 
Paul was a loyal servant of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not let bitterness creep in. And if anybody could have, it certainly would have been the the Apostle Paul. This is one of the things I think we can learn from this personal section. A lot of the theology has already been taught to us, but I wanted to spend at least one night, two nights perhaps, on these personal comments before we finish this out. And on the third lesson, which will be two weeks from tonight, it's my intention to wrap up not only 2 Timothy, but the entirety of the pastoral epistles and give an overview of those uh, one more time. But Paul finished well, and I pray that that's what we will do also.